Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. It is Thursday, 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 Cass, which (laughs) means that it's time for yet another fashion history mystery where we answer listener questions. So who is our lucky winner this week? Well, today's query comes to us from listener Heather Emanuel, who wrote to us requesting a mini-sode on the history of, well, the seersucker. I admittedly knew little about seersucker aside from its stereotypical association with dapper Southern gentlemen. So as I started researching this episode, I was surprised that our investigation would take us not only half away around the world, but also that there is a shocking amount of misinformation out there about the history of the textile that is known as seersucker. And we love correcting that misinformation Uh on dress. So perhaps this is where we should first begin, which is with the textile itself. If any of our listeners are not already familiar with seersucker, it is a striped fabric with a distinctive puckered surface. So while portions of the textile are flat, there are also 3D tiny little puffs, which are made possible by a special weaving technique that utilizes not one, but two loom bars. Yes. So usually when a fabric is woven, the warp threads, which are the threads that run vertically in a fabric, they're stretched and held taut by a single bar at the top and then a single bar at the bottom. And then when they're all, the tension is applied, then the weft threads are woven in horizontally. But with seersucker, there are actually two sets of bars at the top and two sets of bars at the bottom, which allows two different sets of yarns to be in the warp. And oftentimes, these are spun from different types of fibers. So it's it's a little complicated, but that's the gist of it. And this accounts for the stripes, right, when the yarns alternate in color? Yes, exactly. So this double bar technique is also what creates the puckering. So this can be done uh, a couple of different ways. One way would be to use different tension settings on each bar. So one set of warps creating the flat surfaces and the other set creating the wrinkled stripes running in the warp direction. Yet another technique would be to use warp yarns that have different shrinkage properties in order to create the puckers. And these types of 3D textiles are also known as goffered fabrics. And goffered fabrics or goffered textiles are especially prized for their cooling effects. And that's because the puffed areas create these little air pockets that are between the garment and the body below. And this really kind of facilitates air circulation. And this is why goffered textiles are frequently worn in hot climates, including seersucker's country of origin, which is none other than, da-da-da, India. Aha! (laughs) (laughs) So there's a minor bit of the mystery solved right there. (laughs) We told you we were going to be doing a bit of traveling in this episode, and perhaps this is no more evident than in the etymology of the word seersucker. Seersucker, as we say in English, comes from the Hindi word seersakar, which in turn had been borrowed from the Persian word shiroshakar, which translates to milk and sugar. 
It's thought that the smooth portions of the fabric refer to the flat surface of milk, while the puckers reference crunchy granules of sugar. What a wonderful reference. I know. It's very romantic. Yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> By the end of the 17th century, the Hindi pronunciation had been anglicized to seersucker, and we see ship manifests referencing Indian seersucker fabrics as cargo intended for the U.S. colonies, beginning all the way back to 1694. Mm-hmm. And all of this made possible by the grand old tradition of colonization. Oh, yes, that old thing. (laughs) So the monopolistic trading endeavor known as the East India Company, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners already know a bit about, it was formed in 1600 ostensibly to run the spice trade between Southern Asia, India, and Europe. And soon, quote-unquote, the company, as it was known, came to engage in trading all sorts of other goods besides spices, including textiles. And eventually, these textiles made their way to North America. Because in the U.S., by the mid-1800s, seersucker was a ubiquitous and extremely popular textile worn by men, women, and children alike. Especially for labor and leisure activities, so light and cool, seersucker was well-liked at this time because it's easily washable, it does not need to be ironed, and it dries exceptionally quickly. Fashion magazines of the mid to late 19th century are chock full of references to seersucker as it was used for petticoats and work dresses. In 1872, Harper's Bazaar notes that seersucker could be had for as cheap as 10 cents a yard, which would be about... $2 a yard today. Which is pretty cheap for fabric. Yeah, absolutely. And in February 1915, an article entitled The Correctly Costume Made appeared in Harper's Bazaar, which noted the child's nurse costume, as shown by Joseph, is similar to the trained nurse uniform consisting of a striped seersucker dress with a five-gourd skirt, linen apron, cap, collar, and cuffs. This ensemble, April, would set you back anywhere from $40 to $60 today. Yes. So seersucker had connotations at this time of being a somewhat casual textile or fabric, but that did not mean that it was necessarily relegated to be worn by only the working classes. And I want to issue a word of caution here because I encountered a lot of misinformation floating about on the internet and in other kind of like, you know, well-respected sources that credits the invention of seersucker, or specifically the seersucker suit, to a New Orleans clothing manufacturer, the Haspel Brothers, sometime around 1907 or 1909. I mean, even Women's Wear Daily cast is kind of propagating this myth. I say myth because I found plenty of references to seersucker suits that predate 1907. Um, A lot of them that were in the New York Times. Um, For instance, we see Congressman Charles Foster of Ohio, and he's noted to be wearing a seersucker suit by the New York Times in 1878. And there's yet another really kind of fun account of how hot it was in New York City in July of 1887. And it says, quote, a fat man had perspired a brindle seersucker suit into a state of unwrinkled flatness. (laughs) Which which apparently he had sweat so much through this suit that the crinkles of the textile disappeared under this weight of the sweat-soaked fibers. But don't worry, um, the article goes on to note that he ducked into a soda counter to cool off with a watermelon fizz. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like he needs a fan. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, you see right there, dress listeners, the importance of doing primary source research. So while the Haspel brothers of New Orleans did not necessarily invent the seersucker suit, you know, they certainly did a lot to promote the style. And rumors kind of swirl of their publicity stunts, things like jumping in the ocean in seersucker suits at seaside, uh, clothing conventions only to wear the now dry suit to a dinner event later that evening. Yeah, and whether these publicity stunts were true or not, what we do know is that the seersucker suit was especially popular with Southern gentlemen for garden and lawn parties at the beginning of the 20th century, if not much, much earlier. So in the 1920s and the 1930s, this style was also adopted by male students at elite universities, perhaps by way of Brooks Brothers, who cast also claim to have invented the seersucker suit, but they say that perhaps their company invented it all the way back in the 1830s. But, um, you know, some of this stuff is, you know, nebulous and up in the air, but, but what we do know is that the seersucker's popularity with the Ivy League set, this is really what saw its entry into this pantheon of preppy style, and it's really remained there ever since. Right. Long considered a summer staple, seersucker continues to be a much beloved, um, you know, textile for any number of uh, clothing designs today. Used by designers uh, including Tom Brown, Ralph Lauren, Marc Jacobs, and Zach Posen, who actually, Zach just recently did a women's wear collection using seersucker for none other than the aforementioned Brooks Brothers. Yeah, and I actually think that Posen Brooks Brother collection is still up for sale online at the time that this episode will air because I, I just actually looked, I went back and checked and I looked at it the other day. Yeah. And April, I'm not sure if you have read anything about this, but apparently since the 1990s, the U.S. Senate declares one Thursday in June to be seersucker day. <laughs> and the, senators, <laughs> the senators, if they so choose, deviate from their usual uniforms of dark colored suits and well, they don seersucker. Yeah, and that's both men and lady senators, I would like to point out. Um, and Cass, I did know about this. And get this. Okay, this is good. Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana has of recent been the point person that's been organizing this Seersucker Day event. And there's an article that appeared in USA Today last year, so in 2018. And it quotes him saying this in regards to Seersucker. It says, quote, it truly is a celebration of an American product, uniquely American. It also happens to be New Orleanian, which adds to our national culture. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Because clearly we just talked about the fact that a seersucker originated in India sometime before the end of the 17th century. So it is decidedly not New Orleanian nor uniquely American. So, Cass, it gives me extreme amounts of great glee, given the fact that Senator Bill Cassidy has been the one leading the charge attempting to limit women's reproductive rights in the state of Louisiana, to say this, sir, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> um, perhaps you should sit down, embrace a little bit of humility, and let women way more qualified than you to speak on all of these matters, seersuckers, women's reproductive rights, et cetera, et cetera, maybe you should let us lead this conversation. And on that note, that does it for us to sweet dress listeners. May you consider incorporating a little seersucker into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. 
Dress listeners, we still have spots left for our June 2020 group fashion history trip to Paris. So if you're interested, head on over to Like Minds Travel for more information. And Cass, I think Laura mentioned to you and I that some people have switched from the first week to the second week of the trip. So if you're interested in joining us but couldn't because of timing, there are now a few spots left for the first week of the trip that sold out super duper fast. Last but not least, we would also like to thank our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else over at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Trust the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.